So what we're practicing here is samadhi, right? And what we do on those other retreats is vipassana, right? It's actually not so simple. And it's amazing to me how such central concepts in our um, tradition can have uh, be the cause of great dissent, put it that way. What we're actually practicing here is samatha, tranquility meditation. Samadhi is actually um, a functioning of mind, a quality of mind that's traditionally defined in the text, as we've been saying, as the jhanas, particularly the first four jhanas. The Buddha would again and again say, samadhi equals jhana. So it's actually a state of mind rather than a practice. What we are practicing, as I said, is called samatha, or tranquility meditation. And in that practice, what we do is take our mindfulness and direct it to a simple, relatively unchanging object, in this case, the breath. Through that steadiness of mind, samadhi can develop. But strictly speaking, it's not samadhi practice, though people use the terms very loosely and will often um, use them interchangeably, but more technically, this is the way it is. And vipassana literally means insight or clear seeing. And it's not a word that the Buddha used a huge amount in the texts. He talked a lot about sati, about mindfulness, and a lot about samadhi. Vipassana, strictly speaking, is more used when one is actually noticing, having insight into the changing nature of reality, or the direct experience of reality, and in that noticing its qualities, such as its changing nature, its unsatisfactoriness, its, its conditioned nature. Vipassana is really that direct knowing. So again, it's more of a way of seeing than an actual practice. Some teachers even consider that you're not doing vipassana unless you're in that territory of seeing clearly the changing nature of reality, seeing the three characteristics. We, however, have tended to use this word vipassana rather loosely. When the, our, my teachers, our original teachers, went to Asia and discovered these practices and brought them back, it somehow became known as just vipassana. And you'll even hear people say things like the vipassana tradition. Well, there isn't any tradition of vipassana in that way you might think of it. If there is, we're making it up. This is it. Mm -hmm. But there isn't a long-standing history of what we might think if we hear that word of vipassana tradition. At the other retreats that we do here at Spirit Rock and all our associated centers, we're also practicing mindfulness, sati. But we're directing that mindfulness to a changing array of experiences. The essence of, or the definition of sati or mindfulness is practicing the four foundations of mindfulness from the Satipatthana Sutta, very famous sutta of the Buddhas, where it lists these um, number of practices, and we've mentioned it a few times, beginning with being with the breath, just as we do here, but then expanding, expanding into all aspects of the body and mind and more subtle experiences like 
feeling tone or Vedana, the uh, concentration of mind, and then in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, getting into very subtle ways of being and understanding our experience, like the aggregates, or the, um, seeing the six sense doors in a very direct and immediate way. Richard will actually talk about the, um, in the, the, the interaction between Samadhi and the Satipatthana Sutta in one of his later talks, so I won't go into it too much, but I just wanted to set out again some of the territory that we're working in, so there is some clarity around it. But even as I sit here saying that, I know that there would be people who might disagree with what I say, because there are so many different views about how to interpret these terms, but this is what makes sense to me. So again, mindfulness sati, the practice that's a cornerstone of what we're doing here, its literal meaning is to remember, remembering. It's basically remembering to be present. The quality of sati or mindfulness is this direct knowing in a non-interfering, accepting way. Then it's a question of what you turn that to. And in any retreat you've been on, whether you call it a vipassana retreat or not, you'll know that a lot of time is spent just simply directing that knowing to the breath, to something that does build concentration. But because there's that openness, that interest at some point to including everything, the practice shifts. Here we're choosing to just stay with the breath in this steady way. In both... (laughs) In both um, ways of practicing, we can develop what we call access concentration. I think it's been mentioned already. This uh, development of continuity of mindfulness, where it has a lot of the hallmarks of samadhi, of jhana, but it's not quite there. There's not full absorption. In access concentration, there's a steadiness of mind, there's an ability to be with the chosen object, and the hindrances are temporarily suppressed. There, is, there are definite periods where the hindrances aren't so predominant. This is a wonderful place of practice, and many teachers consider that that's enough. I think Eugene was talking about this this morning, that that's more than enough to bring the power of insight to our experience and to, to have awakening, to have clear seeing. It's interesting here at Spirit Rock, the teachings that we do here are strongly influenced by two very different types of uh, schools of thought from the Thai forest meditation masters like Ajahn Chah, Buddhadasa Bhikkhu, um, Mahabua, and then from Burma, teachers like Mahasi Sayadaw, Ubakin, and uh, Upandita, many others of course, but they're sort of the predominant ones. And Both of those schools, though they're very different, don't stress jhana. The Thai forest meditation masters have a very open and spacious view of practice, where they just trust the natural unfolding. If you put the mind in a heart in a simple, uncomplicated environment and just pay attention, you will come to know everything you need to know. That's all it takes. You don't need to study anything. You don't need to get to any deep states of concentration. Ajahn Sumedho is a student of Ajahn Chah's and very much teaches in this way and is a powerful, impressive teacher, one of the wisest people that I've ever met. Has this very spacious view of practice, just knowing what's happening in this non-judgmental way. Upandita, on the other hand, again, doesn't stress jhana, 
He does teach it, but doesn't stress it in his vipassana practice, um, but has a much more concentrated style of practice, using noting, using very uh, moment-to-moment awareness, cultivating what we call kanika samadhi, that moment-to-moment concentration. But even though they, they teach very differently, they have this similarity of view of concentration to those deep depths of absorption is not necessary. And so that's been the way we have tended to practice here at Spirit Rock. Part of this is just also skillful means. There's the recognition in doing large group retreats like we tend to do with giving a, a instructions to a range of people from very different backgrounds with different interests and abilities that if we set out and say, you know, what you all need to do is get to fourth jhana, you know, by such and such a day, a lot of frustration, a lot of difficulty, a lot of comparing. Mindfulness directed to changing objects is something anyone can do. All of us have done that practice and got the enormous benefit out of it because it's so simple and so accessible. And so there is a real wisdom in having the retreats and the teachings evolve as they did. And I think it made this practice accessible to a huge number of people that might not have found a way in if what we taught was just jhana practice and saying that was the doorway you needed to go through. Made it much more accessible, much more, um, and especially as householders, a practice that we could take back to our daily lives, this sense of being aware of what's happening being in touch with our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our moods. And so it was a very inclusive practice. I often say that mindfulness is digital. You can turn it on at any, it might go off, but you can turn it back on in any moment and be mindful. But I can't sit here right now and and you can't either out of nowhere just say, I'm gonna be, I'm concentrated now. Because concentrated is analog. It needs time to develop. It's a, it ha- there's a function of time that has to be there for that development. But mindfulness, we can come back to in any moment and know what's happening. It's a simple, direct, powerful practice. But the last number of years, many years, and again, we have to remember this is a very new um, development here. For people to be practicing in this intensive way, kind of seems like Spirit Rock has been here forever, doesn't it? And people have been coming to these retreats. It's not that long in the scheme of things. In the scheme of 2,500 years of the Buddha's teachings, we're just a blip. And yet there is this sense of, oh, it's always been like this. Well, our our reintroducing or reinvigorating these practices of samadhi has been even a shorter amount of time, last 10, 15 years or so, that people have realized that it's actually a really important and valuable part of the practice, whether we do it more intensively in um, a, a regular mindfulness retreat or whether we actually begin to teach it in this direct way, using the breath or, as I began my practice in absorptions, with metta, with the Brahma-viharas, also a wonderful way to develop mindfulness practice. In deepening in samadhi, as many as of you have, a number of you have been at this retreat every year, and it's become a very central part of your practice. For many of us, it's the first time that we actually get to taste and know for ourselves a calm mind, a tranquil mind. I don't know for you, for me it was kind of like, what? You know, is this what this is? And to actually start to trust that, 
to, to realize that it's actually calm, not boredom, that I'm experiencing. That's a big shift, because calm is actually boredom without the aversion. That's all it takes. If you can get a little bit interested, that same experience is this beautiful quality of mind that's so essential to our practice. So getting to taste that for the first time and also tasting from that calm the power of a concentrated mind. It's one of the things the Buddha actually often talked about, the power of a concentrated mind. Now, if you've heard of the four imponderables, but we always say, you know, karma is one of the four imponderables, the law of conditionality, of cause and effect. If you think about it too much, you'll go crazy. Well, another one is the power of a concentrated mind. The Buddha considered it so vast that it was an imponderable. I know that what I haven't tasted is quite that vastness, but still, it's pretty amazing, the concentrated mind. That's why we keep reading this description of the concentrated mind, because for me, it just had so much more meaning when I had started to taste it for myself. The concentrated mind becomes purified and cleansed, unblemished, free from impurities, malleable, workable, established, and having gained imperturbability. I love that description. Another thing that I add to it is responsive. When this mind becomes concentrated, it actually becomes responsive. And instead of being, as it often is, our greatest hindrance, almost our enemy, it becomes our greatest ally. Instead of being this nagging, judging, comparing, commenting, relentless voice of our second grade teacher or whoever it is you think is up there telling you what's right and what's wrong and do this and don't do that and this is not good enough and should be like this and what about that. Instead of that, we have a mind that's responsive, that we can actually direct. We can incline, and again, another um, teaching metaphor the Buddha often uses was about inclining the mind inclining the mind. We do that in our metta practice. We incline towards goodwill and kindness, and I'm sure you've seen the effects of that in your own practice. When the mind becomes concentrated, this inclination actually works. The mind becomes responsive. You can incline the mind towards these beautiful qualities of rapture or joy or calm or investigation or certain types of absorption, and the mind responds. This, for me, was a huge shift in my practice, a huge development of faith. And, and this is accessible for all of us, even without absorption, just beginning to see that you can direct the mind, incline the mind towards noticing the breath, and what on the first day was impossible, now is more doable, now is more accessible, that this ability to train the mind becomes actually something that's possible. Here's Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche on working with the mind. As we begin to meditate more, we realize that the human mind is a wonderful thing. We are not trying to transcend the human mind in order to understand something more profound. All possible profundity is already within the mind. Generally speaking, if we look at how much of the mind we are using, we realize we are not using very much. If we examine how deep and penetrating our experience is, 
we find it is very shallow. We could go a lot deeper. The point of that, the point is that when we talk about experiencing things in a more profound way, we have to realize that those possibilities are within our basic human nature already. This is possible for all of us. It doesn't have to be the most extreme, powerful experiences. You are starting to taste this potential of the mind. Even if it's just a potential that you've tasted, even if it's just a few moments of calm, or tranquility, or clear seeing, that's enough to give us faith. What we want to do in these retreats is just show you the territory of concentration, give you a few tools to navigate so that you can know what it's like to develop concentration. You know what supports the deepening of the mindfulness and the unification of mind. And in a few days' time, towards the end of the retreat, we'll actually instruct you all to turn to mindfulness of changing objects, to satipatthana. And you will see what it's like to do that, to open up, what that feels like to be inclusive instead of exclusive. And this is very much the main thing we want to have this retreat offer. Not that it's about getting any place, but giving you the confidence and the tools and the ability to know this for yourself. And then you can take those tools and use them in your other retreats, in your life, and develop them as you see fit, as serves you. That's the important thing. So what I want to look at tonight is a bit this big picture of the development of samadhi. Eugene and Richard both talked the last couple of nights more about the moment-to-moment experience, the things that can happen as we develop in retreat. I wanted to step back a bit, and it's why at the beginning I gave you that handout, just so you could see this broad map that the Buddha uh, talked about. And this is obviously not exhaustive. I just picked out the the main list that um, we hear again and again to see the the centrality of samadhi and also it's um, where it's placed in the scheme of things. So I'll be referring to that handout. You don't have to have it out if you don't have it, but that's what I'm going to refer to a few times. And to see how there are different ways, different avenues for developing samadhi. There's no one way. There was a question the other day in the hall about, well, how come one list says rapture leads to tranquility and the other one says rapture leads to sukha? Well, the reason is that the lists have different purposes. They're practices with different ends. And so they will lead in different directions. They're responding to individual situations, individual practitioners. And it's kind of like the Buddha, you know, you could see him as your teacher here and now saying, oh, you've got a lot of faith? Well, this is the way your practice might unfold. Or perhaps you need a little more um, discernment, a little more investigation. Look at this list. This is what you really need to cultivate. So it can speak to both our strengths and also you could say our weaknesses or where we need to develop more. And the flexibility and the broadness of them allows us to find ourselves somewhere on, in these maps and to recognize that They're they're not exhaustive, of course. There's a uniqueness to all of our experience within them. But there's this this vastness of view 
that the Buddha had in his tea. He taught for 30 years. He made this stuff up. You know, he wasn't, you know, they do talk about the previous Buddhas, but the, 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 the understanding is that each Buddha discovers anew the sasana, the teachings, and, and, and presents it in this way. Because, and he loved lists. I'm sure you've gotten that already. This is, and there's a reason for that. It's a great pedagogical tool. You have to remember, too, that at the, the time, I think there was writing, but his teachings weren't written down. They were given orally, and people took them and memorized them. And this seems overwhelming to us today. But to the, in this very day and age, in places like Burma, as part of the training for monks and nuns, they memorize huge swaths of the canon. That's part of their training. And we have that capacity. Our minds have been trained kind of differently. I don't you know, Adrian's saying, last year you talked about such, I'm sort of, I did? And she's, yes, you said that, said, or even yesterday, remember you talked, I did? I'm, you know, it's not my strength. That's why I like, now we've gotten to writing down, and even computers, that's really my strength, is writing down and knowing that it's there somewhere. But in the day and age of the Buddha, it wasn't written down. It was transmitted orally, and people memorized it. And so having it be in the form of lists where you knew if there were seven things and you can only remember six, there was one you needed to remember or go ask someone about. So it's a great training um, for that reason. But we have to remember that as we see it presented as a list, it is just a pedagogical tool. It's the way to put something down. It doesn't mean that they always go lockstep in this order, that you begin at A and you end up at Z. Um, there is usually, though not always, some progression in these lists, some influence that the preceding factor has over the subsequent ones. But they're much more fluid and flexible than that. A lot of them are circular, going around and around, but they all have feedback loops. And they're all, um, um, I don't know whether it's quite holograms. It's more like, if you know the concept, Indra's net of jewels, which is this amazing net. And in each intersection of the, the web, there's a jewel that reflects every other jewel that's there. That's more the um, way to look at these lists. It's not that we need to get, you know, A's on one, and then we go on and start working on the next one. Always weaving back and forth. But you can see, just looking at this list and the way I'm talking about it, we've all been talking about it, is how key mindfulness is. How key this direct knowing. And that samadhi is also on these key lists that the Buddha came back to again and again and again. So mindfulness is nearly always there if there's a list with concentration in it. It is a supportive factor, developing this clear knowing, this direct seeing, and bringing the continuity to it. But the other thing I love getting from these lists is the um, necessity, the predominance, the, the um, proximate cause, the other common thing that's associated with samadhi is sukha. And I don't know if this is the first time you're hearing this, but for me it was a wonderful thing to hear that it's not, it, that this is the quality of mind that I need to cultivate to actually bring concentration to fullness. 
is contentment. There are many descriptions. Uh, the one I have on the sheet is this wonderful list I'll talk about a bit later called Transcendent-Dependent Origination, sometimes Transcendent-Dependent Arising, where there's this sequence of tranquility, happiness, concentration. But it's many places throughout the suttas, and we've already read a number of these beautiful descriptions of what happens in the mind. The Anapanasati Sutta that we've also mentioned, which is this using just the breath, to come to the fullness of awakening, where the breath, through the breath, we know all of the seven factors of awakening and the four foundations of mindfulness, beginning with a simple breath meditation of in, out, long, short, calming. But in the third tetrad, the, 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 the uh, Anapanasutta is bo- uh, made of 16 set steps that are broken into four um, tetrads. Sorry, th- no, tetrad's three, isn't it? Anyway, the third one, third of the four steps, is experiencing the mind, gladdening the mind, and concentrating the mind. And from that, it goes on to liberating the mind. So again, that sequence. And then this uh, little uh, passage from the digger that I think has also been read. When she knows the five hindrances are absent within her, gladness arises. And being glad, rapture arises. Because of rapture, her body becomes tranquil. And with her body tranquilized, she feels happiness. And with happiness, her mind becomes concentrated. And from that goes on to absorption. It's just this beautiful sequence of calm and happiness leading to samadhi. And even though you can see on this list there are words that are translated as effort or energy, they're always spoken of in terms of skillful, or wise, or right, or or balanced effort or energy. And please to notice what's not on there, striving, judging, comparing, all of those states of mind we can get into, tension, tightening, contraction, not on the list. It really is not helpful to the practice. So I'll start with looking at the, the, um, the biggest picture list on this, which is the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth of the noble truths, which begin, there is suffering, there's a cause of suffering, possibility for the end of suffering, and a path leading to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. And what's amazing about this list is it's a description of the entire spectrum of practice. Everything can be included in this list, from the deepest understanding and wisdom to the the absorptions and practice of of samadhi and mindfulness, satipatthana, and to how we live our lives. It includes speech, sila, ethical conduct, and livelihood. I mean, it's just amazing that the Buddha put that together in a list that's talking about liberation, our livelihood. It's just really... uh, so impressive to me that it was so inclusive. And you really know that we're not such a fringe cult after all when the cartoons start to happen, right? I'm sure you've seen someone put that in the most recent New Yorker, that cartoon that's up there on the bulletin board with the couple watching television, and the caption is, this week in the amazing race to enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Bob and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to self? (laughs) It's 
great. So here we are in our own reality show, you know. Hopefully no one's getting disqualified. Our, our idea of this race is we all make it together. We all, you know, that's the bodhisattva view. We're bringing all of us together in this. But I just think it's great that this is getting so mainstream that the New Yorker, New Yorker's still, I guess, a little fringe, but anyway, not as much as it used to be. Okay, for all of these factors in the Eightfold Path, they're all preceded, I should have put it in there, by this word samma which is usually translated as right, but that can get a little tricky for us because we associate that with right or wrong, good or bad. doesn't mean that. It really means skillful or wholesome. Wise is often a good translation. Perfected is one I like, but it's really talking about the possibility. It's obviously not where we begin with our practice of that. And this is definitely often depicted as a circle. So even though you know, here it's a linear one and it begins with right view and, and right intention, these wisdom factors, you really have to see it as this multifaceted circle that's more like a, a pie or a hologram with the, all of these feeding within, back and forth. And you know, we will go through these and, and, and focus on one or more of them at, at different times in our practice and see the influence and get more interested always refining and deepening. It's just the nature. This is the breadth of the practice. It's not something we get done with at some point. It, it really is the heart of it. And in the way it's usually linear, pre, linearly presented, what it's saying is we need some wisdom to get on the path. We need to have some sense of the truth of things to orient ourselves. Then we can begin to um, practice wisely in the, in the world through our actions. Um, and, even, and then go on to meditation practice. So that's the sort of one way. But on the other way, the wisdom part is actually the end of the practice. That's when awakening happens, when we've really deepened through purified ethical conduct and purified the mind. Often we talk about, in, uh, it's traditionally spoken of, the three baskets of the triple gem. And the three baskets are the wisdom basket, the first two factors, the um, sila basket, the ethical conduct basket, the next three factors, and then the last three being the, the, the meditation basket. But the Pali words are panya, sila, and samadhi. It's not panya, sila, and sati. Again, the Buddha giving this predominance to the absorption, so it's that, that's what he called the meditation part of the basket. And even though in this way it's usually presented, view, intention, speech, etc., it's um, panya, sila, samadhi, when we speak of it in shorthand, it's always sila, samadhi, panya. I don't know why that is. It's always sila, samadhi. I mean, why do, they don't do it in this way, but I think it's to point to that there's no real beginning to this. And actually, what needs to happen once we have just the littlest bit of wisdom to orient to the path, we need to purify our conduct. We need to pay attention to sila, to our speech, to our actions in the world, so that we're not harming, that our livelihood is in accord with the Dhamma and with um, the precepts. And there's a real wisdom to this you all probably know how disturbing it can be if you come to meditation and there's a lot of regret in the mind, agitation, 
shame, guilt, needing to address those. And, and a powerful part of our practice can be the work of forgiveness, of healing those places where we have acted unskillfully. This is, uh, it's so essential. So we begin with sila or samadhi. And again, be, sorry, begin with sila. And again, it's something in the way our um, scene has developed here. We haven't emphasized too much. We do a little bit at the beginning of a retreat, and maybe we mention it at the end, and sometimes there's a talk on it, but not that often, because we all want wisdom. We want insight. We want awakening. The Buddha said you need to start with these basics. So important. So really see the wisdom of these lists. So purifying the conduct. And then the next, sila samadhi, what happens is we begin to purify the mind. The first of these um, the factors in the, the meditation basket is right effort, samavayama. And again, this isn't the effort of the engine that's trying to get something and the striving and the wanting. Wise effort are these four really essential practices that we undertake of diminishing basically the hindrances or the kalesas, the defilements of mind, and cultivating the beautiful qualities. So we work directly with the hindrances to, to, to diminish them, to avoid them or abandon them, to, to lessen the impact on our minds and hearts, and at the same time deliberately encouraging these beautiful qualities of mind. This is what we need to do to have the mind settle again in meditation. It is the work of our meditation a lot of the time. And then the next factor is samasati, right mindfulness, again usually defined in the text as the four foundations of mindfulness, a huge set of practices in and of itself. But you can sort of see the progression here. We're purifying, we purify conduct, purify the mind, apply mindfulness, concentration develops. But then we take that concentration and we bring it back to the Satipatthana Sutta and these practices that lead to insight, and we deepen in that. And as we do that, wise effort becomes more active and we let go of the hindrances and we strengthen these beautiful qualities of mind. So even though it's presented linearly, you can really see how these just all feed into each other, that it's not so much a strict progression. And then another aspect that I think is key to see in uh, two of the lists that are on there, the five spiritual faculties, and again, transcendent dependent origination, they begin with faith. And faith is not a quality we, again, talk much about. It's not um, widely appreciated in our secular Western culture. Obviously, if you have a strong religious background, it's something that's very valuable to you. But most of us have moved away from that and through our schooling, this emphasis on empiricism, on logic, on reason, on science, on not trusting something we can't know directly for ourselves. Faith isn't something that I came into this practice even caring about. Didn't think I needed it. Didn't think it was relevant. But I've come to see how important it is. We, talk, we do talk about having faith in the three refuges. Actually did, I did a whole session on this at uh, the, la, the dedicated practitioners 
program retreat we just led because sometimes I feel we give, live, give, give, give lip service to this and don't actually take to heart what, what this means for us as practitioners. But I know for me what I early on had faith in, if it wasn't the three refuges, because they didn't mean a lot to me, you know, I had some sense, but there wasn't quite a lie for me in many years of my practice. But I had faith in the teachings and the path. You know, I saw the possibility. What I didn't have faith in was myself. I really saw that big picture and there was kind of this leaning forward or out there, that somewhere out there was something or someone who was going to show me the way and then I would get it. But I didn't quite trust that I could do that, that I had that capacity to deepen or to awaken. Again, samadhi practice really shifted that for me. Even though I'd done a lot of practice and had built up a lot of faith, as I said, in the practice, in the capacity for freedom, and had seen benefits, there was something about this deepening of concentration that really shifted things for me. I spoke earlier about discovering this malleability of mind, the mind as ally, these beautiful states that, that, that I could know directly. It was also having these beautiful experiences and reading the words of the Buddha and feeling that connection, feeling that I was connected to these practices and these teachings that millions of people had practiced over these thousands of years. It just brought huge stability of faith into my practice. And it wasn't faith in something external. It was that I was experiencing this. I was knowing this. I was able to do this, feel that connection, feel that lineage. And so it's a movement from the faith that was kind of external in the Dhamma, in practice, in, in a path, in the text, in teachers, to internal practice, internal experience. Really big shift, and, and maybe you've already had that. Maybe this retreat might offer that to you a little bit. Again, talking about cartoons and infiltrating into um, the mainstream, there's been a whole series, a whole sequence that that we keep collecting of what we call guru cartoons because it's kind of the archetypal way people that don't practice so much see what we're doing here and you know it's the mountaintop with the guru with the long hair and the beard sitting there and a seeker going up and there's always some question it's a it's a very potent scene for humor turns out so the last most recent new york i had another one i had to share it with you tonight so here's the classic scene, the mountaintop, the guru. And actually what there is, is one seeker going up with the backpack on, you know, they've trekked through the mountains to get to the guru. But there's one coming down who's obviously already had the time with the guru. The one coming down looks actually, doesn't look very enlightened, looks a little even despondent. And he says to the one coming up, I hope you like sports metaphors. <laughs> because you look at the guru on the top and he's sitting there in an easy chair with a baseball cap on, a can of beer and popcorn and he's watching a big flat screen TV. <laughs> I'm not so given to sports metaphors, but some of us here are, so. <laughs> you can know that the guru comes in many forms. But in this list of the five spiritual faculties, samadhi leads to wisdom. It's a direct, it's right there. 
leads to wisdom. It's just pointing to, many people have asked, what do we do this for? The Buddha get, said again and again, the concentrated mind opens to insight. It's the natural place for it to go if the context is there. Again, if you remember at the time, he did all these deep samadhi practices, but there wasn't the turning to insight. If the framing is there, if the teachings are there, and there is that knowing, that, that trust, that, that direct inclining of the mind, the concentrated mind naturally goes to insight, to wisdom. The seven factors is this beautiful list that Adrian spoke about the other night, so I won't go too much into it, but it's interesting to see in that list, concentration leads to equanimity. So again, it's not like, I hope you can feel, just this variation, this flexibility of different possibilities, different ways your practice might unfold. Equanimity again, concentrating leading to equanimity. Equanimity is one of the most beautiful exalted states we can experience as a conditioned state. So considered closest to nibbana, closest to awakening. That the the equanimous mind, in its in its um, openness and steadiness and balance, again with wisdom coming in, naturally will move into opening. To the truth of things. From the samadhi, the equanimity, the stability of mind that we create through the concentration, through the steadiness. And you've probably felt the taste of equanimity already in the, sama- in the samatha as you're steady with the breath. People have spoken about a thought will come in, it'll just float across like a bird. Or I'll see, you know, this emotion arising and I'll just say, sit here with me and not be disturbed by it. That's equanimity. It's already manifesting. It's already flowering in the practice. And then the last list. It's one I love, and I often will give a whole talk on this list, Transcendent Dependent Origination, because I love its beginning, where suffering leads to faith. Most of the time, suffering leads to more suffering. Suffering is suffering. What this list is actually taking off from is this other powerful deep teaching of the Buddha's called Dependent Origination, which is a a cyclical list of 12 steps that go from um, ignorance to all of these states of becoming and clinging and grasping, ending us up in ignorance again and birth and death and suffering, and then we just go on to ignorance. So we're going around and around. This list takes off from there. I always think of it like a fireworks going on. You know, there's a wheel, a hamster wheel. You're stuck on all of a sudden, shroom, off into transcendence. So it takes off from suffering. Ajahn Chah says there's two kinds of suffering. Suffering that leads to more suffering and suffering that leads to the end of suffering. This is a suffering that leads to the end of suffering when it leads to faith. If you've know, you know the... I was going to say, if you know, you know the first noble truth. There is suffering. But the question is, why is it a noble truth? Why is suffering noble? What's noble about suffering? It's noble when it turns us to the path, when it turns us to looking to see what the cause of suffering is and to know for ourselves there's a way out of suffering. Then it becomes noble. 
And so in this case, this suffering turns to faith because we've heard the teachings or we've known for ourselves this possibility of ending suffering. And so we start to practice. And from that turning, from that faith, joy arises. And it's beautiful. Faith, I mean suffering, faith, joy. It's just a lovely turning of the practice. And then just read those words. Joy, rapture, tranquility, happiness, concentration. Beautiful qualities of mind. And they start developing because we're on the path, because we see there's something we're doing here that's profound and true and beautiful and has the ability to end suffering, to bring freedom and joy in this very life, in this, in this way. Because we start to let go. Once we start knowing for ourselves these beautiful qualities of mind and heart, we start letting go of the illusion that happiness is out there, that I just haven't organized things properly, right, you know, in the right way. If I got the right experience, or my body was in a different way, or I looked different, or I had different stuff, or a different job, then I'd be happy. We start to let go of that delusion. And that, you know, we can let go of that in an intellectual way, kind of know that that's the truth. When we're on the path and these factors are arising within us, there's a different letting go. There's a reorienting. And it doesn't mean, because we're lay people, that we're not still engaged in the world. I have a house. I take care of the house, and I buy flowers and you know, bring beauty into my life. But I know that's not where it's at, that there's actually something deeper and more purposeful to be known and explored and, and um, developed in my life than that, than what it's commonly thought of as the ways to happiness. And we know that it's here. It's in this felt experience. As the Buddha said again and again, in this fathom-long body is everything you need to know to come to awakening. And we start to trust that. We start to trust that. In the center of this list is kind of a weaving of um, the seven factors of awakening and the jhana factors. Again, a different manifestation of how practice might unfold, can find ourselves in, in different places. But the central part, as I, I think I said earlier, is this movement of sukha to samadhi, happiness, contentment to concentration. It really needs this pleasantness of practice. We need to fall in love with, in this case, the breath, for the mindfulness to de- deepen enough, to stead- be steady enough, to unify the mind, to develop samadhi. I think I talked about this earlier. You know, how does this happen? Hopefully you've all found your own ways, even just moments where the breath, as Eugene was saying so beautifully, becomes the beloved. Be- we become intimate with the breath. We don't want anything else but this next breath and to be there for it. For myself, as a part of sweetening the mind in this way, I I found it really helpful to use whatever tools worked. We've mentioned a lot of them already. Just the simple ones like counting. Actually settle us into being with the breath. Give the mind something to do and provide the continuity. I use counting a lot. I'll often count from one to a hundred on the out-breath, one, 
next out-breath too. It takes about 10 minutes. If I can do that and if I lose track, I have to start again. But a thought weaving in here and there, that's okay. If I stay in touch with the breath, it takes about 10 minutes and really sets me up for staying steady with the breath. I found at different times imagery, the, 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 the ripple of a small wave on the seashore, smoothness of silk, the ruffle of a breeze, the, the, just this archetypal movement of the body, of nature expressing itself. Whatever works for you, recognize these as supports for practice. We want to stay in touch with the felt sense of the breath. These are supports that it's, we have the intention at some point to drop, but if they sweeten the mind, they allow the mind to collect this is, is just really skillful and really helpful. Even the simple practice of noting in, out, can, can, can provide that sense of contentment and let the mind develop. And then in this list, concentration leads to knowledge and vision of things as they are. And then this whole succession, this whole cascading of deeper and deeper insight and letting go. To f- full and complete awakening from faith, from suffering to faith to happiness, samadhi, and the deepest wisdom. Again and again, the Buddha talked about this possibility. He gave us these broad and vast maps so that we can find a way for ourselves. That's what they are, you know, a map. It's only that. We have to tread the path ourselves. They give us a sense of the scale and the vastness, but they also let us know what's important to develop. Because again, here in the West, many of us, we, you know, as enlightenment or bust, we were going to huff and puff until we got there quickly. And what was the most direct way? You know, how many people went from teacher to teacher? What's the fast? There must be a faster way. What's the best way? What's the way you did it? How does this work? And this is the Buddha's way of saying, look, you can't just, you know, scoot over all this to get to some end point. These qualities of heart and mind, of renunciation, of goodwill, of ethical conduct, of contentment, all need to be developed, all need to be given value. We need to create this foundation that's, that's, that's um, solid, you know, I hate to use that word solid, but that's strong, that's resilient that's reliable, that we can know these qualities for ourselves. And then out of that, trust the awakening to happen. And so it's out of this sense of self-acceptance, of contentment, of well-being. Again, remembering back to that story of the Buddha, after all these ascetic practices, remembering his absorption under the rose apple tree and then taking milk rice, nourishing the body. He knew that the body had to be feeling at ease to actually go to the depths of awakening. We need to take our time to, to, to cultivate these qualities. And then the practice, the path will just unfold very beautifully and naturally for us. So we acknowledge and appreciate joy, happiness, contentment, rapture, gladness when they're present for us. We don't hold on to them. We can't, but you try, it's suffering. I, believe me, we've all, we all try, but it's impossible. But we not, when they're there, we let them be there. We, we, we honor them. We embody them. 
It's a beautiful thing about samadhi practice. In Vipassana, much more, let go, let go. Here, it's, if it's there, bring it to fullness, but don't identify. It's a conditioned state, but it's a beautiful conditioned state that's a supportive quality for the deepening, the absorption, and then the wisdom to come in. And what we start to see is in the state we're currently experiencing, the aftertaste of the previous experiences, and then within that state, the thread of the next deepening. In the rapture, the sukha. In the tranquility, the equanimity. So as we start to know and navigate this terrain, there are these signposts and guides, and and the refinement and the subtlety just deepens and deepens, and this natural, beautiful exploration happens. And we start to have faith in ourselves, in our capacity to know this kind of peace, this kind of happiness, this true liberation. It can seem complicated when you look at lists like this and all of these different things. At its heart, it's very simple. Again, Ajahn Chah said it best. Let go a little, get a little peace. Let go a lot, get a lot of peace. Let go completely, get complete peace. This is really the heart of the practice. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Just letting the words drop away. Just being in your present moment experience, however it is. Trusting the mindfulness. Trusting the direct knowing. Trusting yourself. some walking in the cool night air and we'll turn the AC off so if you could help opening the windows if you're sitting near some windows, open the blinds and cool down a bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.